0: Hello and welcome to No Filter Football.
1: Hello everyone, I am Vardaan here, and welcome to the first episode of No Filter Football. This series has been in the works for a longer time than the U.S.-Mexico border wall, but it is finally out. I am really excited to share this content with the world and I really hope you like it. Today I am joined by my good friend Akanks Gupta, we are going to be talking about a great deal of stuff in this episode. Hi Akanks, how are you doing? I
0: am fine, thank you, thank you for having me.
1: That's good to hear. So over the course of this episode we will be covering the scandal that was the FA Cup final and the end of the Serie A season plus some tidbits from other leagues and transfer news. There will be a special bonus episode coming out shortly after this one, where I will do a sort of Premier League season review, so stay tuned for that one. Now jumping right in, the FA Cup final happened over the weekend and boy oh boy has it left us with shit to talk about. There was a bunch of controversy regarding the refereeing which I think was disgraceful, there were some injuries as well and a whole lot of drama as Arsenal beat Chelsea to win their 14th FA Cup. So in brief, Chelsea took the lead in the 5th minute through Christian Pulisic after they won the ball in midfield and broke through on the counter-attack. Chelsea captain Cesar Aspiliqueta gave away a penalty by bringing down Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang who scored to make it 1-1. Aspiliqueta then went off due to a hamstring injury being replaced by Andreas Christensen in the 2nd half. In the 2nd half, Christian Pulisic also suffered the same injury while bearing down on goal. Arsenal took the lead in the 67th minute with Aubameyang scoring a ridiculously good goal. Chelsea were reduced to 10 men after Kovacic was sent off in the 71st minute and were left with 9 when Pedro was injured late in the game and all substitutions had already been made. The victory means that Arsenal extend their own record of most FA Cup wins with 14. They needed this victory to qualify for Europe after missing out due to their league position and this could be a very important win for the future. So, Akanks, what did you think of the game? Could Chelsea have played better and taken a victory?
0: I think definitely Chelsea could have played better, you know. Uh, They were... I'd say the first primary uh, analysis of the performance should not be... And the main focus of it should not be on the referee. It should actually be on how we fell off after going 1-0 up through Pulisic. And, you know, we... We had bad game management and it was clear from the start that they were going for the uh, long ball to Aubameyang in the space left behind with but who couldn't deal with his pace, you know. He's, uh, he's, not the, he's not the fastest right now, certainly, with his age. And uh, I, I didn't see any substitutions from Lampard at half-time or any change in the way we pressed or the way we approached the game. So it was uh we were we were definitely lacking a bit of everything after we went 1-0 up, you know. We sort of uh took the uh foot off the pedal, so to speak, and we didn't play good enough as Lampard said to win a final. And then, you know, obviously the refereeing decisions that took the majority of the headlines. They were diabolical, sure, but I think at the end of the day, Arsenal did deserve to win it because I I don't think we were that that good enough, especially after going 1-0 up. And everything that could have gone wrong went wrong because, you know, our injuries with our main attacker getting injured and then being left with 10 men. So, everything that could have gone wrong went wrong.
1: With that being said, let's get into the real controversies in the game. Before we jump in, what did you think about the refereeing and the use of VAR in this game?
0: Uh, the refereeing, well, uh, whenever it is Anthony Taylor, it just so happens that Chelsea always are on the wrong side of his decisions. And, you know, I mean, uh, I'll talk about him later. But uh, firstly, I have to talk about VAR because, you know, some of the some of the rules and technicalities surrounding it just makes it... Uh, more, you know, it doesn't help the referees because the rule states that you cannot check a second yellow card, which is clearly not a second yellow card on Kovacic, let's be real. So, VAR um, cannot intervene there and Kovacic has to be wrongfully sent off and it cannot do anything. And it also cannot do anything with the penalty decision because there was no clear and obvious evidence that uh, could overturn the on-field official call. So, I think... Uh, uh, VR certainly needs to be improved and the refereeing well listen they were Arsenal players were going down left right centre we didn't get a foul in the first half and Anthony Taylor was doing le- left right centre for every time an Arsenal player went down and you know it seemed like he was giving the fouls almost on the basis of their reaction and um, how much they dived around the floor I'm not saying it's wrong any player would do that to win a foul but um, the the referee was duped and he was too gullible. He was giving everything for them. And anyway, let's let's move on then.
1: <laughs> I have to agree with you there. The first big call that the referee Anthony Taylor made was giving the penalty that led to the equaliser. Arsenal played the ball over the top, and Aspeliquita knew he would not be able to match Aubameyang's speed. So he tried holding him back there was an arm around the body and Aubameyang really cleverly got the penalty by falling inside the box rather than outside but there lies the problem it was clear in the replays that the foul began outside the box there was not the need to play advantage and a free kick could have been given very easily another problem that comes in the same scenario is that of consistency so David Luiz committed an identical foul with his Man City in June and he got sent off It was the same referee Anthony Taylor who sent off David Luiz, yet he kept the red card in his pocket for Azpilicueta. So, a Frank Lampard agreed with the on-field call that it was a penalty. What is your opinion on that and should Azpilicueta have been sent off considering David Luiz was sent off for almost the same tackle?
0: I think the Louis tackle, it was more, you know, it was clearly in the box and he clearly held back the attacker. I think it was Mahrez or Sterling, I know, but uh, he clearly held back the attacker and uh, the attacker was 1v1. So, that was more uh, black and white than this situation, which, you know, um, the contact was sort of minimal and it started outside of the box and there was just an arm across when Aubameyang uh, reached the box. So, um, I think the Louis tackle is slightly different from this one and more clear and more clear and obvious as VAS says. Uh, so and secondly, I think I think Obameyang, as every clever forward does, he did what he had to do. And uh, you know, Chris Sutton uh, said, I think I I read somewhere he said that Obameyang duped the referee and he, he cheated and won a penalty. I won't say he cheated because in that situation you want your forward to you know, get a shot of goal or get something, get a penalty. You know, even when Harry Kane goes down, you defend him. Obviously, he's trying to win a penalty. That's what forwards do. So, I won't call it cheating, but uh, it was extremely clever because the contact actually began outside the box. And then, uh, because his momentum was broken there, he just carried on uh, to the box. And as soon as Astrid Kvetter just put one arm across, he went down in the box and... It was it was very convincing, and the referee gave the penalty. So, and VAR did not overturn it because there was nothing clear and obvious. So, all in all, that's why I think Lampard also said um, it was a penalty because it's it's hard for VAR to overturn that if the on-field official has already given that decision. But still, the the refereeing it was it was extremely dodgy.
1: Yeah, it's hard to disagree with that. Moving on to the next controversy, which was the Mateo Kovacic scandal. Now, I know and you know that it wasn't a red card for Mateo Kovacic. Was it just a shit decision by Anthony Taylor?
0: It was actually very crystal clear upon replays that uh, Jacques actually stood on Kovacic's foot and it should have been the other way around. But, you know, um, see, that's where Anthony Taylor, I just think... um, Anthony Taylor has this streak about him, has this sort of migraine streak about him that he wants to make the game about himself. He wants to give such decisions uh, which, you know, I, I don't know. Every time Chelsea plays someone and he is refereeing, um, you might remember, we watched that game together, Manuel, uh, Chennai when well, he gave a foul against Chelsea when Alonso was, when Gazzaniga came off his line. Clearly, clattered Alonso got nowhere near the wall, and he still gave a penit- uh, He still gave a foul against Chelsea, and we yeah. are obviously overturned that. But I mean, decisions like those, the Maguire red card, and even in the previous Africa final, when he turned um, overturned a linesman's decision to give offside on the Sanchez goal that opened the scoring, it just shows that he has something in him that he just wants to make the game about himself. Very, very Mike Dean esque and I don't know if it's good to let such a referee uh, referee a game of a cup final, and I think the FA clearly need to look into that because um, he he made some bad calls on the run of play. He was always giving fouls to us, especially in the first half, and uh, it was almost as if they would go down and he would see the players' reactions, gauge that, and then give the foul, and uh, basically give nothing to Chelsea.
1: Yeah, Anthony Taylor definitely has something against Chelsea. So I agree with the first yellow card that Kovacic got. It was warranted he went sliding in. But the second yellow card was a goddamn joke. And of course, VAR couldn't do anything about it. Kovacic went for the ball, did not get it and tripped Granit Xhaka. Except he did not. He barely touched Xhaka who actually made a bigger foul than Kovacic. But it was Kovacic who got the second yellow card and then was sent off. It is worse than what Sergio Ramos did during the Champions League final in 2017. Maybe not that bad, but it is definitely at that level of madness. The consistency of refereeing in English football is worse than that of some of the food Gordon Ramsay eats on Kitchen Nightmares. I mean, where was VAR when the Arsenal goalkeeper said, Mate, why don't I go and catch the ball outside the 18-yard box? There wasn't even a replay shown for that. And at the end of the day, it is a red card for Kovacic. But Nicola Pepe absolutely slams Pedro to the ground outside the box, and it wasn't even a free kick.
0: Yeah, I saw that. And man, like it was exactly Arsenal actually got a free kick at the end of the first half, which like, it took and placed um, wide of the wide of the post, and it was exactly the same foul, but we didn't get the free kick. And even Pedro, uh, before uh, the tackle that caused him the injury, that was very similar to the one um, that Asplik did on Aubameyang, which was just a penalty. And um, Pedro was given nothing and he had a dislocated shoulder, which was his last Chelsea appearance. So, best wishes to him.
1: Chelsea will feel darn dirty by the refereeing and the injuries. This is very sad for them. To see that uh, some of their more important players like Pulisic and uh, Aspiliqueta get injured and Pedro in his last game gets injured. It's not the greatest sight to see. So, Akank, how do you feel ahead of the Champions League game against Bayern on Saturday?
0: I think Clint Dempsey would disagree with that. But uh, yeah, obviously, man, Pulisic has been our best attacker ever since the restart. And uh, he's injured. We have Aspiliqueta injured. Meanwhile, we don't have the best defense. And then uh, I I don't think we we go in with a lot of hope in this match. We go in with a we don't have anything to lose mentality. Maybe we'll come at them, but I just hope that doesn't re- uh, result in us getting crashed by four or five. Um, that would be very Arsenal of us to go down to Bayern like that. But uh, I think Bayern don't even have. I think they have one injury in Pavard. That's it, and Bayern would. Look to clinch this and sort of embarrass us but uh, I think Frank will tell the players to, you know, try and try and give a fight and not do, go down uh, with the thrashing. I guess that's the objective of this. What if what if we get an early goal? Anything can happen.
1: So something like what uh, Jurgen Klopp told his players before they destroyed Barcelona 4-0 at Anfield. Liverpool is
0: Liverpool. I don't think we'll do the comeback but I guess we should obviously put up a fight because, you know, VHLC.
1: Yeah, best of luck for the Bayern game. Also, I do think that uh, there should be a lawsuit against uh, Antonio Rudiger. That man is clearly misleading your club by posing as a defender. It was absolutely bad defending from the German on Saturday. He didn't fall back, which led to more pressure on Aspelikweta, and he was directly responsible for the second goal, getting nutmegged by Hector Bellerin and handing the numerical advantage on the counterattack straight to Arsenal. Do you want to see Rudiger in a Chelsea shirt next season or even in the starting lineup? Or should Tomori be the first choice centre back?
0: I think Tomori deserves to be the first centre-back now based on the performances of all of our centre-backs. And I think he's uh, shown that he's warranted that place in the starting eleven. you know. He played so well against Liverpool, against Axe, in these big games he had mature performances. Even against Burnley, the match for the 6 that hat-trick. He was excellent in that match. He's a ball-playing uh, centre-back, left-footed and uh, has good recovery pace, good tackling. He's, he's a solid centre-back. I think injuries held him back. Otherwise, he would have featured in this period, given how shambolic our defence has been. But uh, another thing quickly on that um, uh, as thing, was that, you know, Frank, the way he set, set it up, he always wants us to be on the front foot, always attacking, always pressing. And uh, Arteta, basically, he, he deployed a four at the back in the build-up. And in the defensive phase, it was a three at the back. And in the attacking phase, Ainsley and Maitland-Niles always drifted in field, uh, taking Reece James with him, who was the right wing back. And leaving Obameang all alone with acres of space, with Aspley who he could skin with his face. So, I mean, that was very recognisable and we still didn't do anything about that. So, I don't think you can really blame Rudiger here. But he is he has been so bad because... I think I think Rudiger isn't a defender you play in a four at the back or in a three at the back, which is a very high pressing because Rudiger is good in a uh, in a defensive setup where you you are basically defending in a low block. You are defending with numbers behind your midfielders behind the ball, and he just has to um, out-muscle people or uh, get in tackles. You know, Christiansen also similar case, good at defending in a block in a three at the back, but. Uh, he's not good when he's left exposed or he's, uh, you know, because of our attacking style of play, obviously, we only have one sitting midfielder and two centre-backs left behind whenever there is a turnover or a counter-attack. So, uh, Ruediger, uh I mean, the best centre-backs in those situations like Van Dijk, let's say. Uh, Van Dijk delays attackers so that his team gets back and they provide cover. But Rudiger, he just steps up and commits, and never gets the ball. Doesn't even foul the guy, and just gives away his position, gives uh, leaves gaps, and that's absolutely criminal as a centre back, as he did in uh, the build-up to Arsenal's second goal when Belardinelli didn't field, and he just he just stepped up, and every time he steps up, he never gets anywhere near the guy because he just leaves too much space, and he just commits so. Uh, Bellerin obviously nutmegged him. He was on the floor. Christensen went in. Great tackle but got unlucky. The ball uh, went to, I think, Pepe. And then he switched to Aubameyang. And obviously, great goal of Aubameyang. He's He's become a fantastic player. But yeah. Rudiger, I just don't think he has a future. Because Frank obviously wants to play a system that is extremely attacking, extremely high pressing on the front foot. And uh, Rudiger is just not suited to that system. He was... He was good in the FA Cup final we won against United. Why? Because we played in the low block with Antonio Conte where the midfielders, wing-backs, everyone was disciplined. We always had a five when the other team had the ball. And it was much more secure. So, I don't think Frank's system is suited to Rudiger. And I don't think he he has a future here. But I, I, he, won't, he won't go out. I don't think Frank will transfer him. But I don't think he will be a starter if we manage to get centre-backs.
1: That being said, Arsenal did play well. They looked shaky, but they turned it around. Fair play to them. Arsenal fans have been very quick to point out to me that Arteta has won more trophies with Arsenal in six months than Pochettino did in five years with Tottenham.
0: And another thing, you know, Arteta, I'm extremely impressed by him and I actually rate him higher than Ole and Lampard because Arteta is exactly what a modern coach uh, should be, you know. He, he isn't stubborn with a system like Pep is with his system, you know, of GDP positional player, out. He isn't stubborn with his system. He adapts according to the opposition and what he has. I mean, to get this Arsenal team to defend like he has done, it's, it's extremely Mourinho-esque, you know. And then he also has that uh, kind of Pep Guardiola about him when his team attacks and when it builds up. So, he's actually a hybrid of uh, uh, the coaches that he's been with and he studied, obviously. And extremely impressed with him.
1: Yeah, Arteta is doing a good job with Arsenal. He's won them the FA Cup. He's taken them to Europe. And now, Arsenal fans will feel as though they will be running for top four or even top six next season. Uh, Hopefully... Uh, Maybe, maybe not. Uh, We'll see where the next season goes. So, even though Tottenham finished 6th, Arsenal's FA Cup win means that Tottenham now have to participate in the Europa League qualifying rounds. Which means we will have to play 3 matches against teams from Azerbaijan or Albania or Kazakhstan. I'm not too afraid, but then again, it is Tottenham. So, we can expect the unexpected. Anything can happen in these qualifying matches. We now move to the Serie A which also wrapped up over the course of this weekend. Juventus won the league but it wasn't easy work as they were kept on their toes throughout the season by the likes of Inter Milan, Atalanta and Lazio. Juventus were only able to win the league due to the inconsistencies of all other teams but that being said this wasn't their best season ever. Here are some statistics to enforce that fact. They lost 7 matches this season Worse than all of the previous seasons and 4 of these losses came after the restart. Their points tally of 83 is also their lowest since 2010. They have also conceded more goals this season than any of their previous 8 title wins with 43 conceded. The goal difference of plus 33 is also the worst across their last 9 seasons and that speaks a lot. They dropped 21 points from winning positions this season. 21 points! Beating AS Roma's 40-year-old record set in the 1982-83 season. It hasn't been the best season for Sari and Juventus but if they manage to win the Champions League they will be able to erase some of the wrongs of this season. So Akanks, do you think that Juventus can win the Champions League? And if not... Who do you predict will win the Champions League this season?
0: Honestly, um, I don't think so. But um, I think they'll still beat Lyon. I think they lost in the first leg 1-0, right? And I think they'll overturn that. But I don't think they're good enough to win the championship right now. Even with uh, Ronaldo, who they obviously got to get the Champions League. And... I think Bayern and Manchester City and even Real Madrid. I think Manchester City and Real Madrid will be an interesting picture because uh, Manchester City sort of have dropped off and teams have um, efficiently beaten them. Meanwhile, Real Madrid, they look solid, man. They look defensively solid. I think they look uh, the best right now uh, in Europe in terms of uh, defending. And um, I think... Um, Bayern or either of these Manchester City or Real Madrid will win and Juventus I I sort of sympathise with Sarri because I know he's a great coach he was at Chelsea but things uh fell apart there as well but I actually equate his situation with uh, Seti and at Barcelona you know uh, his the football being played at Ju- Juventus is nowhere near the kind of football Sarri plays and I think uh, Sari. Uh, Sari's style had more of an imprint at Chelsea than it has had at Juventus Um, right now. uh, They don't play like he wants his teams to play and that's very clear. And that's very similar to Setien at Barcelona because as soon as he came in, he went with that three at the back formation that he goes with, with... you know, passing patterns all over the pitch and triangles all over the all over The pitch. The three-five-two that he trusts. But it didn't work and the players didn't like it. And, you know, uh, pressure was coming from the fans and from the board. So, he switched to something they were used to more under Valverde. And similarly, Sari also, because, you know, um, a variety of factors. He has that pressure that he has Ronaldo in his team. He's not doing anything. And... Uh, uh, he, he, he is very stubborn and the fans are also criticising his football. But the truth is, he, he never really implemented his football here because I don't think he has the right player profile to implement his football at Juventus. And uh, uh, th- that's why I think even in the Champions League game against Leon, which I was watching, uh, they were more focused on crossing in the ball, taking shots from deep. And they had zero shots on target, you know, uh, they had 64% of the possession, zero shots on target. And, you know, that's that's worrying because uh, Sari was obviously brought in to make them play good at attacking football, especially. And utilize Ronaldo, but uh, his football is far from what Juventus is playing right now. Even at Chelsea, I mean, in the initial months, we played extremely well.
1: But you still lost to Spurs that season, so mm, I don't know.
0: Yes, that's that's actually where the uh, where everything started to fall apart for our season. There, we were unbeat. we were the only unbeaten team in Europe up until that point, and then we showed up to Wembley, and you know, Pochettino with his high press, high tempo game absolutely destroyed us. <laughs> yeah, that was very sweet, you know, because sorry, he's been a banker. He has. Uh, 20 years he was a banker then he became a coach and finally he wins a trophy that was very nice to see and obviously it got his Champions League football it would have gotten his Champions League football regardless but we um, ended Arsenal so so that was something um, nice and pleasant.
1: The Europa League victory sort of sweetened the blow of uh, Sari's departure that season. Now moving on to more Serie a news. Inter Milan manager Antonio Conte claimed that the club's management has not given enough credit to the players and to him and have shown their faces only when the results have been good. This comes after a turbulent first season for the Milan side, who finished second, just one point behind Juventus, but featured a great deal of ranting from Antonio Conte, who has been critical of the club's management and planning since the start. Rumours are circulating that he might be sacked and replaced but more on that later as the news unfolds. Inter Milan are currently playing in the Europa League so I think the right thing to do would be to take a decision on his future once the Europa League campaign ends. Atalanta became the highest scoring side in Italian history as they scored 98 goals throughout the season at a staggering average of 2.5 goals per game. They haven't been able to match the record that was set by Mourinho's Real Madrid but they have played some attractive attacking football and will enjoy a second consecutive season in the Champions League. On a sad note though, it was reported that their striker Josip Ilicic was sent home to Slovenia due to personal matters. There are rumours of various kinds circulating all over the internet. Some are saying he had marital problems while some are saying he has health issues. I hope that he is able to bounce back from the problems and return stronger than ever. Lazio also managed to qualify for the Champions League after 12 years of failing to do so. It has been a rebuild under former player Simone Inzaghi, but his work has finally paid off. Lazio striker Ciro Immobile also ended up as the winner of the European Golden Boot by scoring 36 goals in the league, matching the record set by Gonzalo Higuain. He had an unreal season, fair play to him. Roma finished 5th, AC Milan finished 6th after some excellent post-lockdown performances which including slapping Juventus 4-2 in the league. Ante Rebic and Hakan Charanoglu all reinvented themselves from flops to stars and Zlatan was his usual godly self. Napoli finished 7th. It isn't a great season for them considering that they have been the title challengers for the last few seasons but hopefully Gennaro Gattuso can improve the side next season. So the relegation battle between Genoa and Lecce boiled down to the last day of the season. Lecce in 18th place were one point behind Genoa and needed a win at all costs to survive but they also needed Genoa to either draw or lose in order for that to work out. Genoa slapped up Verona 3-0 with two goals from recent injury return Sanabria while Lecce were on the losing side of a thrilling 4-3 match against Parma. Despite the fight, they got relegated. I wish them the best of luck. Mario Baratelli and wonderkid Sandro Tonali were also part of a relegated side in Brescia. I wish them the best of luck as well. There is an interesting story for next season, Serie A though. So Serie B side Benevento managed to gain promotion to the Serie A after 8 games remaining. They are coached by AC Milan and Juventus legend Filippo Inzaghi. If you all have been listening earlier, I mentioned Lazio manager Simone Inzaghi. Filippo Inzaghi is the brother of Simone Inzaghi, which sets up an unlikely derby between these two brothers next season when Lazio and Benevento face off. Finally, the Serie A set an example of working with VAR. There was a high level of consistency in the refereeing in the Serie A and VAR was almost always used without any controversy. There was a game versus Napoli and Sassuolo where there were four goals disallowed due to VAR and all of them were correct decisions. And for some reason, this cannot happen in the Premier League. The referees almost always looked at the pitch side monitor for all decisions unlike the Premier League and there was also a high level of transparency and consistency. Hats off to the Serie A's refereeing and VAR. Not to the league though, they still need to fix the racism problem.
0: Yeah, I I think, you know, in Italy, as you said, the transparency is there. But the downside of that is the amount of penalties being awarded. I mean, you know, because almost everything is referred and nitpicked and um, uh, replayed in slow motion, carefully. And, you know, in that sort of situation, you can always um, uh, uh, take out something that can result in an infringement, which can result in a penalty. And uh, I think the Premier League is on one end of the spectrum where more of the focus is on the on-field referees' calls and what he he thinks and minimal... um, intrusion of the VAR, meanwhile Serie A is on the other end of the spectrum where everything gets referred, the referee goes to the pitch side monitor. I think we need to find a consensus in between where uh, the on-field referee isn't overruled every time and uh, but still he goes to the pitch side monitor if there are contentious decisions and stuff, you know.
1: Yeah, there has to be a reform in the refereeing in the Premier League. There has to be some level of consistency. I will be expanding more on the Premier League's inconsistent refereeing in a future episode prior to the start of the 2020-21 season. Now for some major headlines from around the world before we discuss transfers. So the Championship playoff final between Fulham and Brentford happened yesterday to decide which team would get promoted to the Premier League. Fulham were looking to bounce back to the Premier League after just one season of being relegated while Brentford hadn't played in the Premier League or even in the top division for the longest time, more than 60 years. So after a dull game in normal time, the game was sent to extra time and Fulham managed to turn up at that time. Joe Bryan, the Fulham left back, caught the Brentford goalkeeper out of position and scored from a free kick which was like 35 yards away from goal in the 105th minute. Brian then scored again in the 117th minute after an excellent passing move from back to front. Brentford did score in the last minute of extra time through defender Christian Dalsgaard but it just wasn't enough for them. It's a massive result for Fulham who have come back roaring to the Premier League under the guidance of former player and captain Scott Parker while this also provides them with a the cash injection of between 160 and £170 million. Pounds, enough. To complete a rebuild and fight for continued Premier League status. So, Akanj, we were watching this game together. What did you make of it?
0: Um, I think I agree with what uh, the Athletics Chelsea correspondent Simon Johnson tweeted when he said um, it seemed like the one thing that was common between the viewers and the Brentford keeper was that we were all sleeping before the goal went in which is extremely true because the keeper got caught out completely. And, you know, I I remember a similar thing happening to Peter Cech when we played Liverpool in the Champions League and that crazy game at the bridge happened where um, Lampard scored the penalty and um, Drogba scored the winner but Liverpool kept coming back. They didn't have Gerrard, I think. But the scoring of that game was started with a similar goal where Cech was, you know, uh, he was near the... Uh, uh, basically the players on the edge of the box and he was keeping an eye on them and not his near post. And I think it was Scout or Ben Ayun or someone who just snuck in the ball in the near post. And yeah, that was embarrassing for Czech as well as it was for Raya, who was the Brentford keeper. And, you know, the impressive thing was that the left-back came up with the two goals for Brent, uh, for Fulham. And uh, he he was... There he had the presence of mind to see it's obviously something they've worked on and something he knows that the keeper uh, uh, leaves that sort of room there from which the ball could be snuck in. And he gave him the eyes, he was looking at the...
1: Yeah, that was a strong performance by the defender. Uh, and uh, to any of you who are wondering what game O'Kangst was talking about, it was the 2009 Champions League clash between uh, Liverpool and uh, Chelsea at Stamford Bridge which ended 4-4 but Chelsea managed to progress through on the, onto the next round because of aggregate. That was an impressive performance by the defender giving it his all for the club. And to any of you who are wondering what uh, match Akansh was referring to, that was the 2009 quarterfinal clash between uh, Liverpool and Chelsea, which ended 4-4 on the night, 7-5 on aggregate at the Stamford Bridge, which meant that Chelsea went through on aggregate. And uh, then uh, moving on...
0: ready to interrupt, but uh, Fabrizio just tweeted that uh, De Stegen has signed a new contract with Barcelona, which means he'll stay till June 2025, which means... Chelsea have no chance of getting another good keeper,
1: alright. Yes, yeah, so staying at West London, do you think that uh, Fulham will get relegated next season or can they actually fight for a spot in the Premier League this season?
0: Listen, I think Scott Parker, um, He he's built a solid enough team and I really like some of the players like the centre-back Hector, he was solid and... Um, even in attack, they've had, obviously, Kearney for a long time, who's a talented boy, you know, great number 10. Um, Mitrovic, obviously, great target man, and he can link up play as well. They have a good enough team, but I still don't think it's enough to stay in the Premier League. Certainly, because the league is getting better and better, and maybe this Fulham team would have survived if the league was, you know, if it was like fifteen, sixteen, or sixteen, seventeen, but... Uh, Right now, I don't think they can survive.
1: Personally, I think that uh, Fulham will be able to fight for a spot in the Premier League and I think Aston Villa will get relegated, but uh, that's my perspective. Uh, So, moving on to the next piece of news. English left-back Danny Rose has spoken up about some of the racism he has faced in his professional career and personal life. He came close to retiring a few seasons ago due to this, despite playing for a Premier League side. It just goes to show that racism is still a problem in the world. People cannot live in denial about this issue. There have been instances of racism in Serie A, which have been widely reported. The likes of Mario Balotelli, Salimuntari, and more recently Moise Kane and Romelu Lukaku, they have all been targeted by racist chants from opposition supporters. In the Premier League, Wilfried Zaha spoke up about racist texts he received from a 12-year-old kid Youngmin Son and Raheem Sterling have also been targeted by racism from fans. It is a massive issue and some action has to be seen from the authorities. How big a problem is racism in football according to you, Akanksh?
0: Yeah, it's still prevalent in 2020, which is a sad thing really. Because um, I think the problems in uh, Italy and England surely highlight that. And... In Italy it's more of a of an educational problem, I'd say, you know, like people just feel it's acceptable to do that to uh players you don't like and if they're of a uh, if if their skin color is uh not what they like and they just don't think they have consequences coming their way when they say stuff like that. And uh, I think another big problem which uh you know you see with these English footballers is the problem of social media and how anyone can write anything there and uh, they can write anything to you. They can uh, abuse you. And uh, the thing about it is the anonymity of social media sort of allows that. And I think Zahar spoke on this and said uh, that if anyone is on social media, they should have their address, they should have their proper profile on social media before joining it. So... You know, people like these can be uh, can be caught and uh, educated. And uh, the Premier League started kick it out campaign, which uh, was more focused on uh, racism amongst matchday supporters who came towards the match. And if anyone wants to report, they can report it on the app. And uh, many people have been detained due to that. And I think it's uh, good that's happening, but it's still sad that it's still happening, you know. And uh, Danny Rose, as you said, he he came out saying that every time he would drive his car outside, the police would stop him and ask if he actually stole that car. So these prejudices that are obviously inherent in society, they need to go as well. And uh, they won't if we don't um, raise awareness or we don't take the, this stuff seriously. We have to take it seriously. It's
1: friendly, it's, it's Yeah, racism has to be kicked out from a football and from the world. It's going to be a gradual process, but the process has to be undertaken. So moving on, Eddie Howe left Bournemouth by mutual consent after the club was relegated from the Premier League after five seasons in the top flight. The man took them from the bottom of League 2 across all four divisions of the English League, of the English League, ending at the top. He's done a great job as a manager and I wish him the best of luck. How do you feel about this considering that uh, Bournemouth were uh, always able to destroy Chelsea whenever the two sides faced? Yeah,
0: They were our Achilles heel every time. Either we went to Vitality, we would lose. Either they came to Stamford Bridge and we would still drop points. I mean, it was insane, you know, because I think I think Eddie Howe is an incredible coach. He has a great style of play and it's not always, uh, you know, on the back foot, he likes to attack teams and in the recent Chelsea teams, the trend is that if you attack them, their defence capitulates and he took full advantage of that. He took many points off his in the recent seasons and I think he's he's ready to go to a big club or even a you know, mid-table club, because he's an extremely talented coach.
1: Yeah, I guess now Chelsea will develop a new Achilles heel. Maybe one of the other clubs will uh, destroy Chelsea in the league next season. So, moving on to the next piece of news, Kylian Mbappe was injured in the French Cup final after a challenge from Saint-Étienne captain Loic Perrin, who was sent off as a result. It was the final game of his professional playing career and it did not go well. It's just like what happened with Steven Gerrard when he was playing with Liverpool. PSG did win the match 1-0 thanks to a goal by Neymar, but Mbappe is in serious doubt for PSG's historic Champions League quarterfinal versus Atalanta. Historic because PSG have never managed to reach the quarterfinals. And uh, for Atalanta, it's historic because it's the first time they're playing in the Champions League Ever, and they managed to reach the quarter-finals. Personally, I think that uh, Atlanta can win. Do you think that Atlanta can win this match, Akanksh?
0: Atlanta can win. They are, they are dark horses.
1: I agree. They have scored the most amount of goals in the Serie A this season. 98 goals scored. That's massive. So, the next piece of news is that Ike Casillas retired from football after an illustrious playing career with Real Madrid and then Porto. After suffering a heart attack last season while playing for Porto, he has tried to bounce back and did train with the team, but wasn't able to achieve the desired fitness. The man will forever be remembered for making that stunning save against Ian Robin 10 years ago in the 2010 World Cup Final. A true legend of the game. Adios.
0: He was solid. He was uh, just, you know, he was just one of those people you would want in goal as a defender because... You know that if you make a mistake, he's got your back. And he was one of those keepers who would make um, fantastic saves almost every game. And extremely consistent guy. And big part in that 2010 World Cup win. I think... He's from the Real Madrid Academy, right, if I'm not mistaken?
1: Yes, he is from the Real Madrid Academy and in fact he's returned to Real Madrid to act as an advisor to Florentino Perez. I think that Casillas is going to be really important in the future for Real Madrid. He's going to uh, usher in the next generation of players who could be really important in getting Real Madrid back at the top of the world. Now, for the last piece of news, in the previous weeks, we saw Birmingham City youngster Jude Bellingham move to Borussia Dortmund. Now, to pay tribute to the guy, the club retired his jersey number. What are you thinking? The player has just spent one season playing senior level football with you and it's not as if he's taken you to the Premier League. You've barely survived in the championship. A jersey number should be retired for a player whose contribution to the game was so significant players who we now refer to as legends players like Johan Cruyff or Paolo Maldini or Javier Zanetti or even E.K. Casillas Not for spending one season at the club and being linked with a move to Manchester United Nah, I mean if this is the level we're at I want Serge Aurier's jersey number retired when he leaves to join AC Milan. That man is precious. That man has done so much for Tottenham Hotspur. So Akanksh, do you agree with what Birmingham City did? Should they have retired his jersey number?
0: Yeah, even if they are the club you know that molded him since he was like uh, there since under 8s or whatever, but um it's just, uh, as you said, it's strange. It's like Chelsea retiring the number 19 or something for Mount because um, Mount is moving on to a bigger club and we are the club that made him. And we sort of have our, uh, have him in our legacy that he moved on to a bigger club than us. I think it's very uh, small club mentality, I'd call it.
1: Yes, I agree with you on that. But now it is time for the much-awaited transfer news. I have collected these rumours and done deals from highly reliable sources on social media so you can expect the finest level of news. So the biggest news of the week is the incomplete transfer of Jadon Sancho. Talks between Borussia Dortmund and Manchester United are still ongoing and are said to be in an advanced stage. Some reports are suggesting that United do not agree with the transfer fee for Sancho. Dortmund want 120 million euros for the 21-year-old with Man United placing his price between 80 and 90 million euros. It is just Ed Woodward playing hardball to get a sweeter deal for himself. Earlier, Fabrizio Romano did report that there was an agreement between Dortmund and United but that looks to have collapsed. There are negotiations happening but the process is really slow and United fans are getting tense by the day. But on a level though, Akanks, How good a signing will Sancho be for United?
0: He'll be a great signing because, you know, the sort of money Chelsea are also spending on their attack is uh, everyone is building a wide squad to go into the season because, you know, the amount of games you have and especially to get through that period of um, December to February where you have to play a game every two, three days and you have to win those games to have a chance at the titles. Those are the crucial winter games. And to win those, you need a big squad because you have to account for injuries. You have to account for lack of form. And um, basically, all this can be solved if you have uh, many players for multiple positions. And Sancho will be a great fit. And um, he will provide another good right-wing option because United haven't had the greatest right-wing options in recent history. They're playing Greenwood there in the 4 3 one but he's more of a false nine or a striker or someone who's who gets in the box and not much more of a wide man who takes on players, which Sancho can do. Sancho can also score. Sancho is also great at, um, you know, crossing and passing and uh, assisting. And he's he's a good creative player as well. So it will be a great signing. And, uh, you know, I don't think, Man United fans need to worry that much because, uh, you know, uh, the build reporter Christian Fark, who who has got a lot of uh, transfer deals, portal like the team over one and he's also on to it's and he's a very reliable Tier 1 source, he said that a neutral agent was holding discussions between Dortmund and United. So uh, basically, what I thought was that. Uh, Ed Woodward gave a brief to the English media and all of the English reporters, including Ornstein, Simon Stone and uh, all of the Manchester ones as well, they reported at the same time that talks with Sancho were sort of off because uh, Dortmund were asking too much and personal terms were not agreed and United uh, sort of were ready to walk away. But all this came out at the same time and it was due to a brief by um, uh, by Woodward and Uh, Because of the neutral agent, as Christian Fag reports, uh, United can technically say that they are not having talks or agreements with Dortmund because the neutral agent is doing the business and not United. So they can technically say that they are not doing business, even if the neutral agent is negotiating all of the terms and the contract, which Romano reports have all been agreed upon. And the fee is the only thing that needs uh, agreement upon. And... Uh, you know, even even the Norwegian reporter Jana Age Fjortov, who was a ex Premier League striker, also uh, reported that the secret agent or the secret broker of the deal was uh, Marco Litzsteiner, who is actually Stefan Litzsteiner's brother and who is well connected in Dortmund with the bosses, has a good relationship with the Dortmund bosses, and he was also involved in the deals with Osman Dembele to Barcelona and Aubameyang to Arsenal. So he was sort of the middleman who's been uh, brokering this deal between United and Dortmund. And uh, what he's been doing is, I think, what Fabrizio and Christian have been reporting, that uh, the terms and contract, all of that has been agreed between uh, Dortmund and United through this, through this middleman. And I don't think United fans need to worry that much because uh, this happens basically before every United deal that United tried to throw off uh, the media and uh, try to play hardball to lower the price but in the end they always cave in as we know it. Edward always pays the price. He paid 80 million for Maguire, I mean.
1: Yeah, Manchester United do spend a lot of money. They spend money on Alexis Sanchez and look how that turned out. More on the Sanchez news later, but right now, staying at United, do you think that David De Gea should still remain number one or should he be replaced by Dean Henderson?
0: I think it's time for United to take a bold decision regarding De Gea. And, you know, the decline is very clear since the past two seasons. I'd say he's he's been making mistakes regularly and he just doesn't seem to be the confident keeper who would pull off out of this world saves uh, at a regular like he used to do when he was in his prime. And now, uh, not only does he not have confidence in himself, he does, uh, his defence doesn't have confidence in him. And that plays a big factor, you know. And uh, uh, I think the decline is clear. And even if, you know, Henderson's... Uh, you can see in Henderson's performances, he sometimes makes the odd error like he did against Liverpool and he sometimes concedes near post. But I don't think that is as much a worry as some people say. You know, they say that Henderson isn't that good enough that he should come in this season. But I think the uh, priority should be to get in a keeper that uh, the backline trusts, the a keeper that uh, gives confidence to the team. And... You know, you aren't waiting for him to make the next error rather to just snuff it out and um, not concede poorly. So, I think Henderson needs to come in. I think it it should be considering United's options. They would certainly be prioritising more on getting uh, players, star players like Grealish or investing in defence and... Um, the Henderson deal looks uh, solid enough that they should go through with it because uh, otherwise they would have to look elsewhere and that would take up uh, more money and uh, convincing for some other goalkeepers. But Henderson is united through and through. He wants to join. It's very clear. And his only terms are that he wants to be the number one. So. I think they have to take that decision and it's the best decision for now. And they can focus on other strengthening in other areas after getting this deal through, which I don't think will be that much of a challenge for United given uh, Henderson's affection for the club. And also, uh, I, I still think Ole will stick with De Gea because he sort of uh, still believes De Gea deserves a chance. Uh, but I still think the sensible thing will be to bring in
1: Dean Henderson Yeah, I agree Dean Henderson has been stunning on loan at Sheffield And I think it's his chance to step up at United Now, staying with the United loanies Chris Smalling has returned back to Manchester After an excellent season with Italian side AS Roma Who did not make the loan deal permanent I think it is time for a redemption at United for Smalling What do you think?
0: I think... Um Chris Smalling, I think I read somewhere, he has actually better numbers than Koulibaly and Delict this season because, you know, obviously Kulibali and Delict haven't been at it and haven't been so good this season. And I'm not saying Smalling is a better defender than them. But he's he's had a revelation at Roma. And um, I think the problem with Smalling used to be that, you know, he, he had problems with uh, distribution. He didn't have the composure for what we'd like to call in football a modern centre-back, you know, who's good on the ball, who can spray passes, who can build out from the back and help the team progress. But uh, in the sense of a traditional centre-back, I think Spalling, um might be United's best option right now. You know, like, he's, he's good in the air. He's good 1v1. He has pace. He tackles well. Um, and I think even when uh, we were making fun of United's defence under Mourinho, I think it was more of... Jones being paid with him, that made him look bad, even though he was United's best defender at that time. And Bay had had his own injuries, so Jones was, you know, Jose was forced to play Jones with Smalling. And uh, I think he should be brought back and he should be used in rotation with Lindelof and Maguire. Because... uh, You know, I think Lindelof slightly gets the nod ahead of him because of Lindelof's composure and how he plays out from the back and all of that. But Smalling can be a good option for United uh, all season long because Maguire certainly doesn't seem like the centre-back that would be commanding the back line. He himself has had not the best of times in the second half of the season. And um, Maguire... Also, another player, like I said about Rudiger, he looks better in a three with um, more protection rather than in a system where, you know, he's, he's at the halfway line and he has to stop counters. Like you have to do when you're Manchester United and playing attacking football and you need to be a smart defender there. But he also has that problem of when he steps up and gets skinned by attackers. And I just think smalling would be a good option in situations where Lindelof and Maguire, if they're not on form or if they're not playing well, and Smalling sort of provides that uh, solidarity of the traditional centre-back that they don't sometimes. Yeah, he should have a chance. I'm not saying that, like, you know, he should be a bona fide starter because there's a very big difference in Serie A and Premier League. I'm not disrespecting any Serie A teams, but um, um, in the Premier League, uh, he won't... uh, you know, it's it's much more physical and teams come at you more and they attack you more. And uh, the United defence, uh, uh, it won't be as packed as the Roma defence, you know. They play more attacking and you have to be there on your own and snuff, uh, snuff out danger more quicker. But I think he should come back.
1: Alexis Sanchez also completed a deal with Inter Milan. He was playing on loan with the Italian side and now it looks as if... Inter Milan have agreed to pay his wages and now he'll be joining them on a permanent deal. And uh, what do you think about this deal?
0: But I think uh, Sanchez has played well there. Um, You know, uh, the time he's been there, he's played really well. And he's had uh, lots of key passes. He's been a creative force in the team. And uh, I think the league suits him. He's enjoying his football again. And it's a... It's a win-win for both clubs. And I know what you're saying about the Premier League rejects part because uh Conte sort of has that um, thing of uh, acquiring transfer targets that are you know considered old or pasted or um uh, that that's he he always thinks short term whenever he's building a team and what would suit him at the moment and what would be easily available. That's why he got Gordine, he bought um, Ashley Young. And um, other players, and so my point is that uh, the deal—it's a win-win situation—and um, the wages that United were giving Sanchez, is—it was—it was very heavy on the wage bill and the finances, and in a situation like COVID, where um, you know news just came out that Arsenal. Uh, I think they laid off 50 of their employees because of the financial burden that the club is facing. Yeah. While they have Ozil, players like Ozil on 350k a week, yeah. and he doesn't play at all. So the same thing is with United and every other club that uh, the players with high wages, uh, they, uh, the clubs are negotiating deals for them because it's taking, uh, it's having a burden on the clubs financially. And it's a good situation for United you know to offload him he's I don't think he has a future at United considering the players they're targeting signing Greenwood coming up uh, Sancho surely he'll sign and uh, it's it's a good deal
1: yeah have to agree with that now moving on to Chelsea and the Kai Havertz deal looks to have stalled what do you think about the player is he worth the hype and the price tag
0: I think Kai Havertz is a supremely talented player and I was actually I was actually reading a Gundogan interview recently where he was speaking about both Werner and Havertz and he commented on how Havertz, you know, sort of has that Michael Balak about him the way he arrives in the box and the way he plays and he actually said that on ability he would rate Havertz higher than Balak and he would see Balak as sort of uh, someone that would uh, play with a lot more bite and someone who is more aggressive in the box rather than Havertz, who's technically so gifted. At the mere age of 21, he's produced um, 17 goals in his first Bundesliga season, and even in this season, under a change of system, in a change of position, he still managed to produce double digits and uh his assists actually uh increased this season compared to the season before where he was more of a uh, attacking midfielder who arrived on the edge of the box and scored goals and this season he's also been creating in that false nine role he has slipping in uh, slipping in players with side roll passes and uh, through balls and uh, i think he's he's a really good player and uh, chelsea will do a good job if we acquire him which i think we will because personal terms have been agreed And uh, uh, I think uh, a player, if a player is supremely talented like Havertz, who had Europe's top clubs lined up for him before the COVID thing happened, uh, can join Chelsea, it will be great for us. Because we need that sort of attacking, goal-scoring midfielder who will give goals, who will... Um, provide something in the final third when we are looking to unlocking defensive defences, which was our problem uh, uh, majority of the Premier League season. We couldn't unlock defences as well as we wanted to and he's the sort of player who brings the goal scoring and creativity and smart positional play that would get us goals. And regarding the deal, I think uh, it's just a matter of time before it happens because Havertz uh, wants to join the club which is very clear. Personal terms have been agreed and uh, the fee is the only matter, just as it is with Gino and Sancho And they want 100 million euros of friend, We are willing to give 80 with add-ons And I think we'll uh, come to an agreement soon Hopefully
1: Yeah, Havertz is an excellent player, but uh, Chelsea, although having invested in their attack Like you've said earlier, they have a Lamborghini in attack, but a Maruti 800 in defense With Kepa looking set to be axed as the first choice, you need to be in the market for a new goalkeeper and some defenders. Now, three goalkeepers have been linked with Chelsea, these being Burnley's Nick Pope, Sheffield's Dean Henderson and Andre Onana from Ajax. Which one of these would you prefer to have at Chelsea?
0: Well, um, I've watched a lot of Nick Pope this season. Uh, During the second half of the season, Nick Pope has been excellent, you know, tremendous in short-serving. But um when I whenever I watched him, he sort of had this thing where he's not particularly particularly good with his feet. So low-driven shots against him always result in goals. When we visited Turf Moore, uh Policet scored. And uh, you know, I remember that Zaha goal from a long time ago where he he was dribbling against Tarkowski and me, and he just chopped back onto his left and um uh, at Pope's near post, he drove a low driven shot, and uh it should have been a it should have been a stock save for a keeper, but he let it through and uh in those situations, I think owing to his height a bit, he doesn't get down well that well and uh I guess Pope isn't Pope won't suit Chelsea also because of the way we play. You know, we we need a keeper who can play out from the back well, and Pope isn't particularly good with the feet as well. But I think he has a bright future, and he can upgrade from Burnley. Uh, certainly, uh, coming to Dean Henderson, I think he's he's United bound, and I don't think it's a realistic deal. The only way, and this is a very one in 100 chance that this deal happens is if United make it clear that they want to stick with De Gea and Henderson has no future as the number one. Then I think we can pursue him and get him, but that is very unlikely to happen. Otherwise, I'd want Henderson. Yeah, he's a a really good keeper. And um, the third one, Unana. I think Unana is the best out of this slot um, for Chelsea. And he looks keen to join Chelsea as well from the reports that have come in and uh, even though he may be sort of mistake prone sometimes playing not from the back, giving the ball away, uh, being caught too high up on the pitch, uh, I think he's the most solid out of these three and suits us the most and uh, would, be, would be obviously an upgrade on Kepa. Anyone would be an upgrade on Kepa the way he's playing right now but uh, Onana should be the one we we should go for if we obviously don't get the o Blacks or now Nautosh Tegin signed a contract so we can't get him but I guess we'll settle for Onana because he also comes at a price of 30-40 million which yeah. I, we, easily without getting much of a loss out of Kepa who I think we will loan I think at the end of the build to Valencia or someone.
1: Yeah, anybody could be an upgrade on Kepa at the moment. So now moving on to Manchester City and Spaniard Ferran Torres completed a move worth £22 million to the club from Valencia. He's been signed to replace the void left by Leroy Sané and he has similar attributes to that of the German. He's really fast and skillful on the ball and can pick out a good pass and involve his teammates. It's a good move by City who have also finished a move for Nathan Ake from Bournemouth. So, I guess that Guardiola is not taking any chances with his defence this season and it looks to be a Laporte and Ake partnership at centre-back. And I think that Guardiola is now aiming to go for a third uh, Premier League title. So, what do you think of this move for Nathan Ake?
0: I don't think it's a, you know, it's not a great deal or neither is it a bad deal. But um, City definitely uh, needed another centre-back to strengthen their ranks given how they go all out in every, every um, competition they play in, so they needed that depth in defense, especially when um, Pep has uh, had uh, centre backs that he doesn't trust in John Stones or not. Um, and Nortomendi. You know, he he clearly does not rely on them and doesn't trust them, and uh, he needed another centre back that he could you know uh, trust and uh, someone who would make mistakes at the rate of uh, which automatically and Stones made mistakes and uh for that i guess it's a good signing because i guess city have a lot of cash to splash and uh uh 40 million for ake just seems the start of it and i'd be really interested in seeing who they go for after torres and um, Aké. i think it's a overall it's a good signing
1: I think much of the problem last season that Guardiola had with City was that he was playing centre-backs he didn't trust like Otamendi and Stones. Even Fernandinho was being forced to play as a centre-back even though his natural position is a central defensive midfielder. So do you think that uh, with the arrival of Ake and the movement of Fernandinho back to his preferred CDM role, do you think that uh, City could change
0: how that uh, Fernandinho can actually play um, at CDM, I think it will almost be like another new signing because he's excellent at that role. And, um, you know, Gundogan had to come and play that. And even though Gundogan's a decent enough there, I don't think he's nowhere near as good enough as Fernandinho is at doing that role perfectly, spraying the passes, uh, breaking up play. You know, I think Fernandinho is one of the best at that. And uh, if he gets to play more and more there, even though he's aging, uh it's almost like a new signing for Manchester City. Yeah, uh, I think they should also try to um play Cancelo. Cancelo is extremely talented and yeah. I don't know if that was necessarily a Guardiola signing because he just doesn't seem to play him. Um as much as you know, as soon as he signed Laporte, he put him in, he trusted him and Laporte has been made one of the key members of the team and is the key member one of the key members yeah. of the team and uh, similarly, I think Cancelo can also, you know, uh, I think he can play left-back as well given the way he's, um, he sort of goes forward, he's very tricky with his feet, uh, has a good delivery and I think they should focus on Cancelo as well because of the talent he has.
1: Yeah, Cancelo is a supremely talented uh, uh, defender. He can play on both sides of the pitch, either as a right-back or a left-back. He's an excellent cover for Benjamin Mendy who uh, gets frequently very injured and I think that uh, Cancelo should get his chance at uh, Manchester City Now moving on and Brighton on the sneak have completed the transfers of free agent and Premier League winner Adam Lalana and Ajax defender Joel Beltman. Lalana will provide a boost to the Brighton midfield while Weltman is a versatile defender who can slot in at any position along the back line It is good business from the South Coast side who have been consistent in finishing in the bottom half.
0: That is really good business because um, they struck at the right time with these deals because uh, right now most of the clubs that surround them, they are obviously wary of their finances and not making deals as swiftly as they would when the transfer market opens. And um, I read that uh, they have been tracking Bellman since since uh, almost 2-3 years and Brighton scouts have been looking at him and uh, just last season, uh, they could have got the deal done. But uh, uh, Ajax, uh, Ajax sort of pleaded to Weltman to stay. And for that loyalty, they gave him another one-year extension, which uh, had a 900k release clause in it. So m- that obviously massively helped Brighton to sign him right now in such um, financial conditions where uh, nobody is looking to spend big and it's not a market where high prices are going for players it's more of a buying market than a selling market so they got him for 900k and I think it's it's a great deal for them. They obviously have uh, Terry Clamty. they signed from Chelsea, the youngster who plays right back but Veltman provides great cover and another option in centre-back now that uh, reports of Shane Duffy leaving are coming he, he may go to West Ham as reports suggest so I think it's really good business, obviously signing Lallana on a free is, uh, is a good piece of business because a lot of uh, mid-table clubs around Brighton, they were looking for Lallana's signature and uh, they got to him first and they have a bright young coach in Graham Potter who sort of played the courageous style of football. He said he was going to play and still managed to keep them up and they're only going forward from this position
1: yeah, I have to agree with you there. Uh, Brighton have played some interesting football this season. They managed to destroy Spurs 3-0 at the Amex Stadium earlier. Yeah, I mean, uh, Graham Potter has played some interesting football with the club and I hope that they can stick a claim uh, into the top 10 this season with their new signings. They can surely do that. They have the squad, but they need to get the results. And I think that Graham Potter can uh, go ahead and get those results for them. So... Spurs have also been in the transfer market of late. A deal for Southampton midfielder Pierre Emil Hoibeg has been completed worth 15 million pounds. The player uh, will be announced shortly after finishing his medical. Uh, this also comes after a move for Kyle Walker-Peters who's left Tottenham to join Southampton on a permanent transfer worth 12 million pounds. Everton had made a bid earlier but Hoibeg looks set to move to Tottenham because of European football guaranteed. He's a powerful and skillful midfielder and will open up the possibility of new tactics and a new style of play at Tottenham. There have been rumours surrounding Tongi Ondombele and Serge Aurier. Ondombele has attracted the interest of Inter Milan, who have half a squad filled with Premier League rejects. Spurs are maintaining that Ondombele is not for sale, the player just one year into a six year contract. It makes no sense to sell him and incur a loss. Aurier has been linked with the move to AC Milan who want to make him their first choice right back. However, with Walker-Peters leaving, Spurs will have to buy a right back and a decent one before they make any decision on Serge Aurier who has, as the reports suggest, already agreed personal terms with ac milan now personally i don't want either of these players to go Aurier has improved the defensive side of his game he has given away some penalties but he has also improved defensively he's been stronger he's been faster he's been quicker he's been playing well defensively i don't want him to leave and as far as tongi on Domble is concerned i just think that he had a uh, problem with injuries and inconsistencies but apart from that he's a fantastic player and i don't think that uh, he should be sold and i think aurier has and i think aurier has definitely improved this season
0: that's true you know um in Mourinho's system uh whenever he's building up he builds up with a three and aurier goes high up uh, in the right uh, right hand side of the pitch and he provides a good attacking outlet and attack and He was, um, this season, I think he was not as rash as he used to be before, you know, giving away fouls, even though he did sometimes. But he's uh, sort of growing into that role and becoming more composed and uh, having better decision making. But uh, again, on Endomble, I don't think you should sell uh, Endomble at all because of the promise he's shown. He's extremely talented um, in going past people and. you know dribbling through and he has that perfect combination of pace and power and uh, if you just get him uh to uh, improve the defensive side of the game or the off the ball game as people say um he he can really become one of the key players because what spurs lack is someone with thrust and drive in midfield and um uh, and Domblet and along with ourselves so both of them can really strengthen their midfield Uh, considering that Spurs don't have the kind of money their competitors have to bring in marquee signings in midfield I think it's very key that Enomadise stays and you sort of um, make him into the player he can easily become because of the talent he scored
1: Yeah I mean it was the same problem with uh, Moussa Sissoko he was hated at one point in time he wasn't giving good performances but now look at him he's become our first choice starter he's reinvented his career and i think that tongi and domble should just be given that same amount of time he's a very talented boy he's just 23 years old he should just be given that little bit more time and he will prove he will prove himself to the club mark my words
0: that uh, Coutinho wants to come back to England and, um, you know, to the Premier League where he was once successful and he was on that level of the hazards and the Sanchez uh, level where he would single-handedly win Liverpool these games and he was their star player, the team was built around him and he flourished so much in that uh, system that you know when he went to barcelona it just wasn't the same the way they were playing him on the wing in a 442 in a 433 it wasn't as i think klopp even remarked on it and said in that situation as an inside forward coutinho doesn't feel comfortable he's the sort of player would you know uh, drop deep and so and more of a creative guy rather than someone you put in goal scoring positions or on the wing making back post runs or inside runs. And I just think he was not utilized at Barcelona the way he should have been and he sort of lost form since then lost confidence. Uh when he came to Bayern, he had few good games, but they even they don't have trust in him, which is clear they have signed other wingers. They have Sane Kuman. And Gennabri, you know, and you know, they have talented wingers, and I don't think Coutinho has a place there, so he should come back to England. I think Arsenal will be ready to take office for him. I don't know why Arsenal is going for Villian instead of going for a loan deal with Coutinho. There is no point in signing Villian on a transfer with a three year deal when you can get someone like Coutinho potentially on a loan, not even on a deal where they have to give him the kind of wages that William would command. (laughs) Willian is robbing them at the moment, I feel, with the three-year contract and the wages he's asking. And uh, I think Arsenal should have gone for Coutinho on a loan deal. And he's ready to come to the Premier League. I think uh, Coutinho could maybe end up at, maybe, I don't know, Everton or even Tottenham, But the big clubs in mean, uh, they, 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 they have talented like you know Chelsea Wilson, Moore, you know Bergwijn you have Son you Liverpool have have Lucas Moore, Moura, Moura Penny Benchard at the moment they don't even have Lamela, his Lamela uh, right, as Thiago as it seems there. you have he is in the number of attackers I think don't really to strengthen there with the same squad again you sort of need that creativity from midfield that's the kind of signing Spurs need. so I think replace the easy centre-backs so I every Dortmund realistically Tottenham look like the only clause sometimes the move to the big club it doesn't work you know I mean you see the examples of these uh, world class Premier League players in Sanchez Hazard and um, Coutinho where you know they they stepped up I mean Sanchez didn't even go to um, a club outside of England he went to United but his form dropped off and He's he's now labelled as finished. Whereas, uh, if you look back in his Arsenal days, he was one of the best wingers of the Premier League and one of the best players of the Premier League. Same with Coutinho and Hazard. I think Hazard sort of had a injury-infested uh, season, and uh, he 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 still isn't finished, and he can still come back. Um, but that all depends on how his ankle. Um, has his ankle injury, you know, progresses and if it gets better and if he does play against City and all of that.
1: Coutinho, Hazard, Sanchez, they're all works in progress. But on that note, we end this episode of No Filter Football. Big thanks to my friend Akanks for joining in and providing his own views. I wish you the best of luck for Bayern on Saturday.
0: Thank you. Thank you, man. <laughs>
1: In the next episode, I will be covering the Europa League and the Champions League campaigns In addition to some headlines and transfer news Hopefully Jadon Sancho will have decided where he wants to play next season A special episode on the Premier League will be out shortly after this one So stay tuned for that one Do subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening You can follow it on Instagram It is at nofilterfootballpodcast I'll be uploading updates over there, so it's best you check it out. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a great day ahead. Goodbye.